love Resonate. It's good to see you. So good to see you. Hey, I want to greet our online family too. If you're out there, hey, welcome. So glad that you're joining us for the finale sermon of our great seven-week series called Explore God, where we've been asking really some very important questions about the Christian faith. We've been asking questions like, you know, um, uh, how could a good God allow us to go through so much uh, deep pain? How, how, how could Christianity seem so narrow? Or even the idea that, um, is the Bible actually a reliable text? Um, but all those questions that we answered and all the apologetics and philosophy that we've applied would really be moot if we didn't answer this last question, which is, can you know God personally? Is God a personal God? Could you know him personally? And we're going to do that by looking into a specific account in the Bible where we're going to actually look into a conversion, a person actually that is being converted uh, to Jesus in Christianity. And my hope is threefold. First, that if you are a believer tonight uh, or an unbeliever tonight, that you would look in and become a believer. That's my hope. And I've been praying for that end. Or secondly, that... um, that you are a, 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 you think that you're a believer, but you actually are not in light of looking into this text and that you too will choose to become a believer. And, and third is that you are already a believer today and that because we're looking into this conversion, that it would actually strengthen your faith. It would firm up your faith. And so that's my hope. So um, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Um, please turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And um, if you are a regular here, you realize that I don't have my regular voice. I am um, under the weather, and um, I'm not at my 100%. In fact, I would say I'm pretty low, but um, I would say that I'm delighting in the Lord because um, just when you're weak, I realize like, you know, to be strong or feel strong is one of the biggest cover-ups for your weakness. In fact, like the days that I was most strong, uh, I've needed him just as much as I need him today. And so that's the reality, that his grace is sufficient for me and that whatever he would want of us, he's going to use broken vessels like me and like you. And so I feel comforted by that. And as I always pray, that the Holy Spirit will preach indeed a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was, a sm- he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Oh, he has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is the word of the Lord for this great evening. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Would you please have a seat? You know, in the Bible, there's a story about a rich young ruler who rejected Jesus because he loved money more than his potential salvation. And so he chose money than God. Then Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than actually uh, for a rich person to be saved. But then he goes on to say, um, but what is impossible with man is, impos- was, is made possible by God. Now, today, we're going to be witnessing a camel going through an eye of a needle. God making something impossible possible by bringing a salvation to a very rich man. And this is a familiar story of Zacchaeus, but we're going to take a deeper look into this personal encounter with Jesus. And it's going to teach us four things about how we could know God personally. And if you're taking notes, here's the first. It always begins with intellectual openness. It starts with openness. Are you open today for a relationship with God? Verse 2, it starts by saying, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, we don't know a lot about Zacchaeus, but we know two things, and that's enough. And that he was a tax collector, and that he was rich, and that tells us a lot. Now, when we hear the word tax collector, immediately in our context, we think of somebody like the IRS agent, right? Nobody likes the IRS. No one. You know, I heard this joke once. It said, you know, what is the difference between an IRS agent and a carp? The answer, one is a bottom-feeding scum sucker, and the other one is a fish. That's terrible. I know, but IRS agents are terrible, right? Nobody likes them. But you know what? A tax collector in this context is far worse. You see, Jericho was a conquered city, and they were conquered by Rome. And Rome, in order to put them down and continue to keep them down, they basically kept them weak by deliberately levying a huge income tax, crippling taxes to take away most of the income of these middle-class Jewish people. So it wasn't really taxes. It was basically protection money. It basically went like this. Well, listen, uh, if you don't want us to come and kill you, then you're going to have to pay about 80% of your income uh, and, and to us each year. And to collect this money, they would use Jews uh, as tax collectors and gave them a quota for them to collect for Rome. And any, other, any money that was above that quota, they got to keep as commission. And so these tax collectors were Jewish people taking from their own people, becoming rich, opulent living, maids and servants and finest of robes and the biggest of homes. And they were living this at the expense of hardworking fellow Jews. And therefore, these tax collectors were deeply hated, deeply hated. And here we see Zacchaeus. He wasn't just a tax collector, but it says he's a chief tax collector, meaning he is the richest and the meanest and the worst tax collector of all. So you could surmise that there wasn't a person in Jericho that was a friend or a fan of Zacchaeus. But what's so curious about the gospel of Luke, as I read it this week, is that the entire gospel actually mentions six different tax collectors. And would you see that in that, all six times, Though they were hated traitors and betrayers, each time Luke refers to them in a very positive light. Isn't that interesting? For instance, in chapter 3, we see a tax collector being baptized. In chapter 5, we see Matthew, the tax collector who wrote the first gospel, actually being invited to be a disciple. When we see in chapter 7 and chapter uh, 15, we see tax collectors who are receiving Jesus' teaching. 
in chapter 18, the humble tax collector beat his breast, repents, and gets saved. And here in chapter 19, the chief tax collector, salvation comes to his house in the presence of Jesus. Now the question is, what is Luke getting at here? What is the pattern? And the pattern is this, that Jesus is actually attracted to the outlaws. That Jesus are attracted, is attracted to the pariahs and the sinners. And they were attracted to him. They weren't re- attracted by religion. They were attracted to grace and the gospel. And that's why Jesus is being hated on here because he was eating with sinners. Guess who, who were hating on him? The religious people. And here's my reality and my hope for Resonate Church, that we would be criticized sometimes in our community because we're welcoming sinners. That's my hope. Don't you wish that our church had a reputation in our city welcoming outsiders like Jesus did? And that some people would just hate us because we did? I mean, that's my hope. And this is good news for the outsiders. If you are an outsider today, you're welcome here. You'll always be welcome here. Because Jesus welcomes you. And look at how Zacchaeus just gets started. Look at how his his start goes. Verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was just seeking. It seems so plain, but the statement is incredibly significant because some of you are just seeking to see who Jesus is also. And here's the assumption that many of us think. You know, The assumption is that in order to have a life-changing encounter with God, your life has to be falling apart. You know that your life has to be falling apart and that's the only reason why you come to God. You know, but the problem is I, over many years of ministry, I've seen many people's lives fall apart and they reach out to God and surely God saves them and I've seen that. But at the same time, I've seen the same kind of people when their lives are no longer falling apart and is restored, they leave the faith. Why? Because it was never about God himself. It was always about them. The center of their life was about them, not God. And therefore, when they're no longer in need of God and the peace of God and the tribulation that God could redeem them from, once they're in a safe place, once they're in a profitable place, once they're in a, a, a good place, an abundant place, they no longer give them any attention. And you're like, wow, that seems a little crass. And that happens all the time. And this is why in this case, in this context, the people were following Jesus to see miracles out of their own interests. They say, heal me, Lord. Heal my child, Lord. And how do I know this? Because, well, you realize the crowds that followed Jesus saying, heal me, were the same people soon later, 10 days later, said, crucify him. They're the same people. That's why I'll never forget what a missionary once said. He said, 90% of Christians pass the test of adversity, while 90% of Christians fail the test of prosperity. See what this is saying? He's saying when you're in need of God, man, we're all followers of God. But when he blesses you and when you're abundant and your life is good, then you no longer lead him. And, and most of us fail in just a faithful walk with Jesus. So today, if you're just seeking the Lord, but you're not in a desperate need, you're like, I'm not in desperation. I've just been seeking Jesus for a while. Some of you for weeks, for some of you years. And you're just saying, I'm just not sure if I'm convinced. You're in a really good place because this is exactly where Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was not desperate. He was not hanging at the end of his ropes. He was fine. But he was curious. He had an intellectual and emotional and spiritual curiosity. And I believe if you are here today, um, I believe that you have that same curiosity too. 
that you are here because you're not in trouble, you're not desperate, maybe you are, but the question is, are you seeking him? And by the virtue of your presence, I believe you are. I believe you are. You are on the tree like Zacchaeus. But secondly, you must then overcome people's opinions of you. Now, this is very hard, but this is what requires you to actually say yes to Jesus. Verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. On the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up to a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Jesus was going to pass that way. Now notice the persistence of Zacchaeus here. It's fascinating. The first obstacle was that he was short. But do you know the re- that's not the reason why he climbed the tree? How do I know that? Well, listen, I'm an average height man, right? And if, if I was in the parade and a six-foot-five guy wanted to get ahead of me, hey, could I get in front of you? I'm like, hey, no way, man. You're just, you're, you just won the genetic lotto. You know, you need to get behind me because I can't see. But what if a child came up to me and said, hey, could I get in front of you? I'd be like, all day, no problem. Why? It's skin, no skin off my nose. Why? Because they're shorter than me. I could still see. Well, here's the problem. Why does that kiss? Why couldn't he get in front of all the other people that were taller than him? Because they didn't let him. Why? Because they hated him. That was the problem. That's why he climbed the tree. It wasn't just because he was short. Because he was a traitor. People hated him. He had no fans. That's why he couldn't get in front of the crowd. That's why when they saw Jesus go to Zacchaeus' house, people were really angry at him. They were angry at Jesus because they hated Zacchaeus. Now you know why he climbed the tree. Not just because it was short like the children's rhyme suggests, but because he was hated. But here's the second obstacle that he was facing. In order to climb that tree, it would cost him his dignity. I mean, man, think about it. He was rich. He was a powerful man, right? And he, for a guy of such promise to climb a tree and look from there, that's rather dumb looking. I mean, could you see one of our presidents do that? President Obama, President Trump, President Biden climb a tree? I know he's old. He probably can't. But anyway, I mean, like, you know, let's say he could. And he climbed it. I mean, it's so undignified. It's such an undignified look. He, he would never do it, right? And so you would look dumb. He'd be the laughing stock of all the nation. And obviously, you know, at the risk of that, Zacchaeus went because he was the laughing stock of Jericho. And, and they might even get an interesting view when he did that because, you know, back then, men didn't wear pants. They wore tunics. And when you climb a tree with a tunic, then you get a different view. You know, so, so all that to say, this is like a precarious situation. And, and now today... Listen, in all seriousness, I realize that there are some people here who are not following Jesus because of the fear of people, of what they're going to say to you. You know, in a sense, you hesitate to climb the tree or follow Jesus because you feel like socially you'll be ostracized, you know? And I've, I've heard people here who've come here and gone. You know, friends and family say, what are you, what's wrong with you? You're falling into that evangelical stuff? Are you crazy? Are you Okay. And, you know, I've, I've come to people, I've come to meet people who used to come to Resonate and left because they're like, yeah, just there's too much pressure, whether it be from a Muslim family or a Catholic family. I've heard it all. They say, well, I, I, I just don't want to climb the tree anymore because I'm just ostracized. I have no friends. I'm too embarrassed. So they never climbed the tree, so to speak. And you know what? I have compassion for them. I get it because, you know, 
These days with the internet, the mob is quite strong and the pressures from society and family could, man, really weigh heavily on us. I, I, I feel that. However, if you're going to pursue Jesus, I want to let you know something in advance. You're going to eventually have to care more about what Jesus says or thinks about you than what other people think about you. You're going to have to come to that conclusion that his opinion of you has to be the final word, not other people's opinions. And do you know that he thinks so well of you? He loves you. He cares so much that, that he would actually ransom his life for you. So why do you care so much of what the serfs say if you already have the everlasting love and everlasting affection of an everlasting king? That's what you have. That's what I have. And just one more thing. You know, there are people who say that they're believers in this room, and yet they're not baptized. Um, though they say they've been saved. And while you call Jesus your king, yet you, the opinions of the crowd still rule your heart. This is how I know that's so. Because you say, well, I don't like to get in front of crowds. You know? Well, what do you think that is? You see, you're allowing the opinion of others to rule your heart. And, man, I'm not trying to put you on blast. Seriously, this is not my point. But we have baptisms coming up on November 9th and 12th, just next week. And, and some people are going to come up here and get baptized. They're going to profess. They're going to be bold. They're going to stand for Jesus and say, I believe that the Lord is my Savior. And they're going to claim that. And every time you're sitting in that seat, and every time we have baptisms, you're going to have to do one of two things. You're going to either have to callous your heart, or you're going to have to make excuses. And some of the excuses sound like this. You know, I've been baptized as a baby. You know, I've been baptized. I'm good, right? I mean, you know that that's not a believer's baptism because you didn't know what you were doing when they were dunking you. You know, but it's okay. You're like, that's okay. You're just having to make that because you just have to appease your heart, and I get it. Or, or the other thing that we say is like, I'm saved by faith alone, not by works, right? And baptism is external work, so I don't need to be baptized in order to be saved. And I'll say, absolutely, that is true. You don't need to be baptized to be saved. And yet, what does your faith look like when you are submitted to the voice of the crowd rather than the voice of your king? What kind of faith is that? I would just encourage you in, in great compassion to test that and say, why am I not getting baptized though I believe that Christ is my king? Maybe you say with words Christ is your king, but the one that rules your heart is the opinion of people. And so might I just encourage you? There's a king that loves you. And there's a king who died for you. And there's a king that longs to give you his identity. He's given you a new name. He's called you your name. He says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come on down. Could I come into your life? And this is what the Lord is doing right now. Jesus is calling your life. If you're here listening to this, he's calling into your life and saying, I want you in my life. I hope and pray that you're not ashamed of that. Don't miss Jesus. I would implore you to climb that tree. Third, you must now know the difference between grace and religion. Yes, you need intellectual openness. You need to be above the people's opinions of you. But you need to know the difference between grace and religion. They're so stark and so different, and yet we get confused all the time. And Jesus says here, Zacchaeus, I'm coming into your house. Then he says, um, today salvation has 
come to your house. Past tense, has come to this house. And this is incredible, and I, I just don't want us to miss this significance because every other religion says, if you want to be saved, you have to do this and that and this and that and this and that. It's a list of things. And the reason why no religion could ever say salvation has come with the exception of Christianity is because every other religion is all based on what you have to do rather than what's been done for you. And that's why all the major world religions, with the exception of Christianity, say, you don't know you're saved until the very end of your life, until you continue to obey your I mean, commandments. And even then, you'll never be sure if you've done enough. You're always left to wonder, did I do enough? Did I do enough? Did I go enough to this and that? And that's the reason why salvation for other religion is always a process. You can never be assured that you're saved. But the gospel says the salvation is not a process. It happens in an instant. Because you can never try to be good enough. Because Romans 3 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is that Jesus was good enough. And he exchanges his righteousness for our sinfulness. So it is imputed righteousness instead of infused righteousness. Do you know the difference between the two? You see, infused righteousness is what... Some Catholics believe that uh, and believe that somehow you could add righteousness into your life, you know, through works, like through baptism, through obeying the sacraments, through confessing your sins and avoiding like mortal sins, you know. Uh, it's like getting liquid from the sewage and adding really pure drops of water and saying, well, this is good to drink. Like that, that's not a good drink. You're not, that's not pure water. That's not drinkable. And this is what Isaiah 64, verse 6 says. To God, our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. You see, we can never clarify that water. So instead of infusing clear water into that dirty water, we need to impute that water with new water. And that's what we need. And Christ imputed his righteousness over us. And he obeyed the laws, all the laws that we couldn't obey. And he imputed them over us. He gave them to us as credit, and that comes through faith alone, through Christ alone. Now, look at how this whole thing plays out in this narrative. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to this place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I love verse 9. It says, today salvation has come to this house. That's amazing because it's not that he just gave salvation because Jesus is salvation. And he came into his house. And back in Jesus' time, you see, hospitality was not just an invitation for a meal, but an invitation to your life. And this is why everybody was freaking out that Jesus would actually bring him into his life, right? And Jesus was not just being invited to his house, but he was not offering religion. This is what religion says. Zacchaeus, you need to clean up your life. Only then will I come into your house. That's what religion says. Religion says, I will love you. I will save you if you clean up your house first. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says instead, I'm coming into your house. Salvation has come. I'm loving you first before you clean up your life. Do you see this? There's an order that is very different. In the gospel, the gospel orders Christ loved you first, 
and then you obey. Religion says you must obey in order to earn that love. Remember, it wasn't Zacchaeus that called Jesus. It was Jesus who called Zacchaeus. Jesus, walking down the road, saw Zacchaeus and knew everything about his life. And he says, Zacchaeus, he knew his name because he knew everything. Come down that tree. I'm going to your house today. I'm coming into your life. Salvation is here. You see, many people think that if we love God, God will love us. The truth of the matter is we could never love God unless he loved us first. That's the reality. So as a result, Zacchaeus sees this. And because he was received, because salvation has come, he cleans up his life. And this, again, is what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible that's just so redeeming is in John 8. You know, Jesus was with this woman who was caught in adultery. And, you know, all the religious people wanted to stone her because they were more righteous than her. And she was just standing there and Jesus says, I do not condemn you. You see, you see where he starts, where Jesus starts? He says, you're safe with me. You're protected. You're secure. I know everything about you. And yet, I don't hold anything against you. And that's our starting point. He says, there's no condemnation. There's no separation. And Jesus says, now that that's established, let's talk about your ethics. Let's talk about your life. It's time for you to leave behind your Life of sin. That's how it works. Now, literally, in this room, show of hands here, who's been forgiven for something really hurtful that you've done to somebody else? Show of hands. Yeah, everybody's hands, I think. Yeah, everybody, right? Everybody. I raise both hands with all fingers. Like, I've, I've hurt many people, and I've been forgiven most times, if not all. And we really hurt somebody who's really deeply forgiven us. And tell me that's not the person from that point forward that you are most motivated to not grieve. Right? You're like, I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to harm you. I remember doing something like really awful to Jenny, my wife. And I remember her forgiving me, making me a sandwich. It just changed my life. I thought she was going to kick my butt. But instead, she's like making me a sandwich. And I was like, oh, man, am I forgiven? She's like, yes, you're forgiven. I love you. And I was just like, man, I never want to hurt your feelings ever again. Right? And that's the reality. And if you felt okay of grieving that person that has forgiven you massively, then you just might be a sociopath. I mean, seriously. Because I, it's very hard to do. So when Jesus says, I'm coming into your house, and he offers his life, man, no wonder Zacchaeus invites him and says, please, come into my house. Not only come into my house, man, arrange all the furniture you want. Arrange my life. Let me arrange my life around you. Have your way with me. And listen, Jesus doesn't say, if you clean up your house, I'll come in. That's religion. The gospel says, I'm coming into your house, no matter how dirty it is. No matter what your past is. No matter how long you've rejected me. It doesn't matter. I'm way more patient than you're willing to sin. That's what Jesus says. And as a response, you'll want to clean up your life. You see, the pattern of this is throughout Scripture. Could I teach you a theological order? A the theologians call this the indicative that always comes before the imperative. Indicative is your uh, identity. Always comes before the imperative, which is the commandment. 
right? And so Christ always gives you identity. The Bible always gives you identity first before it tells you what to do. Same thing with the Ten Commandments. Before the Ten Commandments, you know, God tells Israel, you know what? You are loved. You are mine. I'm going to liberate you. You're going to be my people. Now here's the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, here's the Ten Commandments. According to how well you do this on this test, then you could be my people. He doesn't say that. You see, the indicative always comes before the imperative. See, the Bible doesn't say our repentance leads to God's kindness. It says instead, God's kindness leads us to repentance. It always does. So a gospel person sees grace as absolutely scandalous. Every single person who knows grace, every per- person. I, I would say if you don't know this kind of grace that you're not a believer, you might have professed that Jesus is Lord, but you don't understand this grace. You're not a believer. A religious moralist says, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the Christian says, he welcomes sinners and eats with me. That's what a Christian says. I can't believe he eats with me. I can't believe he knows me all the way through. And he still loves me through. That's a big difference. And I I just want to challenge you and ask all of us tonight. Do you see how big this grace is? Man, it's scandalous that he would receive prostitutes, tax collectors. I remember exactly when I was when I received Christ. I remember one of the big theological hurdles that I had to overcome is right around then, I found out that Jeffrey Dahmer uh, became a Christian in prison. And I had trouble with that. I really did. I mean, he had murdered 17 people or something like that, right? Brutal. He was a cannibalist and he did awful things to awful people. I mean, awful things to these people. And, and, and like, what? That... He's in prison, he's, he has a life sentence, and then all of a sudden he gets to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and gets baptized, and he's saved. That's crazy. It, it just really honestly disturbed me. And that was the start of seeing myself as a religious person rather than a Christian, because a Christian sees the scandal of grace, that that grace that saved Jeffrey Dahmer is the same amount of grace that I need and that you need. Today, every single person has the same amount of grace, that God's grace is that big. Do you know John Newton, the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace? You know that every time that you sing that song, you are singing the words written by a slave trader and a sexual predator? Do you even know that? When he says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. He really meant it. He wasn't being poetic. He's saying, I'm a wretch. I'm messed up. He could save Me, that amazing grace, and when he encountered this amazing grace, his life was just like Zacchaeus, 180 degrees turn. And he was singularly then responsible for persuading William Wilberforce to stand in Parliament to fight for the abolition of slaves. He did it, and he became faithful in his marriage for the rest of his life, deeply regretting his life before grace. Man, the scandal of grace includes all these people that I mentioned and them more. And I know some of your story. I know what you were like before you were a Christian or even as a Christian. And I see what God has done for you. And I see how you've grown. I know your testimony, many of you. And it's just radical. I can't believe God would love us. You see, the scandal of grace includes them. It includes me. It includes us, all of us. And lastly then, the appropriate response to the scandal is joyful submission. 
joyful submission. And I just want you to see how Zacchaeus responds to the invitation of Jesus. We see the word here, joyful. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled, right? He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now here's really something interesting. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed. Notice who the crowd is mad at. Who is the crowd mad at? Is it Zacchaeus who stole all their money? No. They're mad at Jesus for loving a person that they deem a sinner and a wretched person. And could you imagine living as Zacchaeus who's always been ostracized, greedy, rich, but lonely, all of a sudden, at the cost of his reputation, decides to love him? He's like, who is this that you would save even me, a wretched sinner, that I've been swindling and I've been taking money from all these people, my own people, the people that were working so hard to make a living and I took it all for them and I gave most of it to the enemies that conquered us and I kept most and some of it so that I could actually be living an opulent life. And he couldn't believe that Jesus would love him. Zacchaeus was astounded that Jesus would love him at the cost of his own reputation. That moved him and changed him. And the question is, how about us? How about you and me? Because we know the crowd that got a lot more hostile than to, uh, that to Jesus than when Jesus was actually criticized by um, the crowd in Jericho. Because when Jesus went to the cross to save us, the crowd didn't just get mad at him. They actually killed him. They killed him. It wasn't at the cost of his reputation to save us. It was the cost of his life. And on the cross, Jesus was crucified for us. And if the knowledge of Jesus losing his reputation changed Zacchaeus' life, then we have to ask, how much should we be changed in the knowledge of Jesus losing his life for us? Which is very different. I mean, would you look at Zacchaeus' life after he joyfully comes down from the tree, verse 8? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And, you know, first he goes beyond the Mosaic law, which actually says that you should give 10% away. Instead, Zacchaeus says, in light of this joy and salvation, I want to give 50. And he goes on to say that if I defrauded anybody, I'm going to give four times fold. You know, back then, the Leviticus law would say that uh, four times fold is the worst economical crime that you could commit was to steal cattle. And if you did that, you owe four cattle, four times. And he's actually impending upon himself, putting the penalty Uh, the greatest penalty a person could pay at the time. Now, this was not required of salvation. Then the question is, why would Zacchaeus go above and beyond? Listen, and this is one of those marks of salvation that maybe you thought you were saved because you gave words, but your life doesn't look like this. And this is one of the marks of salvation. It's really a joyful submission to the Lord. Not begrudging compulsion, but a joyful submission. 
note, this is not Zacchaeus operating out of fear, saying, oh, king, if I give away money, would you please not smite me? This is not what he's saying. He's saying, no, he's saying, instead he's saying, Jesus, because you have come to me, because you have come to my house, because you have come into my life, I just want to please you. You have embraced me, received me, and now I want to do everything for you. You see, this is a joyful submission. And when a person who has grasped what Jesus has done for them, see, like Zacchaeus, they don't ask, what must I give in order to get salvation? They say, what can I give for you? What can I do for you? It is my joy. So say, if Jesus' love for you is real then, I guess my question tonight is, what is your joyful submission? You see, maybe you're not a believer. You thought you weren't a believer, but you believed everything that I've said. You know what that makes you? A believer. Because, you know, no matter whether you said it with words or not, Jesus has come into your house. And you've just been a believer. You just didn't know it. Or maybe some of you who said just words, but Jesus is not in your house because you don't have a joyful submission. You still care so much about what the crowd says. And maybe perhaps you are one of those people and you're like, man, I'm not baptized. Next week we're being baptized. All these people are going up. And I haven't been baptized. And again, I, I care more about my reputation and what people think of me than what Christ will say. And so now because he gives me the identity, because he gives me the final word, his, he, his word is the last word in my life, not the crowd, not the mob. You know, then I'll say, yes, I will be baptized. And maybe that is a sign of salvation. Because, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 10, if you stand before me in front of the people, then I too will stand before your people. But if you will not stand before God and his people, then I won't stand before you. See, so like, maybe this is your next call, a joyful submission to the Lord. Because you have heard his voice. You have heard his voice. And this is the voice. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. Because eventually I'm going to have to climb up one. And I'll climb up a tree. And as Galatians say, curse is the tree to which Christ hung on. I have to climb the tree for you. And isn't it interesting that there's a reversal of fate for Zacchaeus, that he was the hated one, but he received love. And Jesus should have received all the love and honor, but he was the hated one. He did that for us. He did that for you. He did that for me. He's calling out to you tonight. Zacchaeus, or whatever your name is, and he knows your name better than you know yours. Hey, come on down. I want to go to your house. I've been knocking for a long, long time. Would you let me? You come down the tree so that I could go up the tree for you. There's a George Herbert poem um, called The Sacrifice where he envisions Jesus on the cross, on the tree. And he talks to all the people that's below him. He goes on like this. He says, Oh, all ye who pass by, Behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. It gave life to everybody because it took his life. 
and he's willing to do that for you tonight. Could I close by just telling you what blows me away from this portion of the story? This was about 10 days before Jesus was crucified. 10 days. And he knew it. Could I ask, if you only had 10 days to live, what would you do? Maybe you go see something that you've been meaning to see, your bucket list. Maybe you'll go eat the very thing that is your favorite meal all 10 days. I probably would do something like that. Or maybe you would just hunker down and spend it with your family. Do you know what Jesus did? He had 10 days. And in the crowd, he looks at that one individual in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I want to come into your life. Do you feel the love? Do you? Ten days and he's looking at one individual to save. And I don't know how long it took for you to be here tonight. I know we all have a story. But it's not about pleasing anybody. It's not about doing anything else but to respond to the name that Jesus has been calling. Come down from the tree. Come down. I want to be in your life. And for many of you, you just haven't known that you believe that all along and that you are saved. And because you're saved, you should respond in likeness. And for some of you, you thought you were saved, but you didn't realize that the grace is far more scandalous than you've ever realized. And so today you could confirm absolutely once and for all your salvation. And so would you just close your eyes with me just for a moment? And you have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove. But my ask of you is that if you have heard Christ call your name over the seasons or you've never seen Christ this good and you realize the scandal of grace covers you tonight fully, that his love for you is before you've ever done anything good, that this is the grace that he offers. In a moment, I'm actually going to ask you to stand from your seat because that would be one of the steps to say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I, I, I just know that I'm standing for God because he says, if you stand for me in Matthew 10 among men, I will stand for you. And that you would declare your allegiance to Christ not people, not the opinion of your mom or dad or your friends or, quote, evangelicals or whatever. No, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not a churchgoer. You're not an MC attender. You're not a worshiper. You, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you can make that commitment right now, you've heard the voice of God calling you, come down the tree. I want to come into your life. Would you stand right now together? We're going to stand wherever you are. But I pray for you. Jesus, for those of us who are declaring Christ 
in a way where we are certain today that our fate is sealed. That today when we say, we've heard you call our name and we're responding, and that we're just coming down the tree because you have entered into our home. Salvation has come. We realize you are this good, that this grace is this scandalous, that it covers all of me, all of my past, even my future. Lord, for those of us who've been so scared of, of the crowd, of how they would react, and now we see you as our master and our king, and we want to give our allegiance to you. Lord, thank you for the confirmation of these people that are standing, that they're saved and they're with you forever. And you are telling them now, I love you. I have secured your faith forevermore of all eternity. You are saved. You are beloved. Now go and sin no more. Father, will you help them to do something radical? Help them to live a different life that is transformative, that will show the world that you live. We love you. We love you for doing a miraculous work in the midst of us. We pray in the matchless name of our Christ, Savior, our King. All God's people said, amen. Let's give him praise. Amen.